Welcome to the second season of The Bulb. If you've joined us on The Bulb before, welcome back. If you're a new listener, we're pleased to have you. Season 1 listeners will remember the diversity of our first audio outings. We journeyed back in time to learn more about the history of Queensland's service landscape and explored the personal history of one of our state's notable figures in responding to gendered violence. We were inspired by contemporary leadership in the sector and heard the warm conversation of our First Nations colleagues who shared their practice wisdom. 2020 will be remembered by our world as the year of COVID and how we communicate with men who use violence when face-to-face engagement is not possible was a topic we could not ignore. If you missed season one, don't worry, you can still access these fascinating podcasts. For those who have yet to subscribe, we suggest you do so by tapping that subscribe button. Then you'll get notified of each new release of the Bulb podcast as season two and beyond unfold. In this second season, you can expect more variety. And don't be surprised if you hear new accents as an international research colleague or two join us. Oh, and be prepared for some familiar voices too, as we hear from our friends in practice and academia. Hello, Season 2. Well, Helen Marie, it's lovely to catch up again today, as as always. Uh, and um, we're, we're doing this uh, podcast for the Queensland Centre for Domestic and Family Violence Research. And I thought we might start with the, uh, the day that you and I met, which was in Morocco uh, in 2008, I was reflecting. So mm, almost 23 years ago. And um, we both discovered each other in our interest in gender-based violence. But I wondered if we'd start with your um, telling us a little bit about what, uh, what got you into this field in the beginning. Yes, well, first of all, it's just lovely to be talking to you and I so appreciate the memories. Um, I think one of the things that we really find in this work that when people do find each other, we tend to stick together um, <laughs> throughout the duration of our work. And I think you know, if you want to know why I've stayed in the work, it's because of the collegiality and the friendships. Um, But what got me into the work, I was really fortunate. I'm one of the few women, you know, um, in the, on the planet, as we know, who I have never had anyone enacting violence against me. And I recognize that that's lucky. That's very lucky and very fortunate. But I think I was from a pretty young age, I was aware of how widespread it was. Um, I grew up in a really small town. So it was the kind of thing where you knew where your friends didn't want to go home at night, that kind of, you know, just that sense that you get, even though there's no name for the problem when you're young. And then by the time I got into university, I was very concerned about things like sexual violence and domestic violence. And like a lot of young feminists, you, um, you tend to be drawn towards you know, say crisis hotline work or that kind of volunteer work. And I think once I realized the scope of the problem, how just terrible it is and how widespread it is across all corners of the planet, but how necessary it was for us to be in the work, I just, I just stayed with it. So it's been my entire adult life has been devoted to this 
this topic and this problem. Yeah, it's interesting how it um, uh, draws you in. And uh, certainly in my own case, um, I can say that I have experienced violence, but um, it, um, yeah, it certainly stays with you. And like you, um, I value our relationship and indeed, you know, the kinds of collaborations that we form um, across the world, really. Uh, mm. You know, when, when, when we have the uh, good fortune to be involved with university life. So um, I wondered about um, some of the projects that we've collaborated on. And, um, and also you visited uh, with me in Aotearoa, but also in Australia. And perhaps just focusing on Australia, can you talk about, um, from your perspective, about what you've learned and observed uh, from the time that you spent in Australia and visiting with the centre? The thing that, well, the thing that originally brought me to Australia was obviously you, <laughs> because <laughs> we had had our relationship and I, you know, worked with you already in Aotearoa, but, but I can say that the thing that kept me so tied to uh, Australia, and particularly the work of the center, was first of all just the people at the center are fabulous, our coworkers, our colleagues, the friends. But it is a truly innovative center. I mean, so at the time when I was writing my Fulbright proposal, it it was this entity that I thought I couldn't believe every country didn't have it in terms of that marriage that the center is between the the government sector, right, and, and education, so tertiary education, and as well as the community, communities, really. So the engagement with all kinds of communities, whether it's like children, you know, or adults by age, um, Aboriginal Torres Strait Islanders, First Nations people, um, you know, the, the fact that you have in Queensland such a high percentage of people who are the FIFO, you know, fly in, fly out population that you have to um, deal with some of the stresses that they endure. I just... I was captivated by the center's comprehensiveness as well as holistic approach. And it still boggles the mind that we haven't caught cotton on to the idea that this is a model that can make a difference. And if, when you ask me what keeps me tied to and attached to the center in, in Australia is really just the amazing work that it does. It touches all things and brings in all things. And you can't solve gender-based violence if you don't take that comprehensive holistic approach. Mm. Thanks, Hilary. Yeah, and that's the thing that I loved about the center and indeed uh, why I ended up uh, joining the center in 2014. Uh, and of course now it's managed by a wonderful team and, and colleagues that we know. Uh, and. Um, it, and it continues to grow in terms of its uh, contribution to, you know, capacity, workforce capacity building uh, and, and uh, you know, sort of fundamental research in, in our area. So just, uh, you've got an interesting position, you know, and you've had the, uh, clearly the origins in the United States and uh, the, your experience in Aotearoa and now also in Australia. Um, and I wondered about your observations about the models of practice and research uh, that we can take from the US um, and vice versa. So I imagine that while you've, you know, interacted with these three contexts, that no doubt there's been some thinking about, you know, what are the things that are common or shared or what is innovative and might be, uh, you know, helpful to transfer elsewhere? You've got some thoughts? So I think... I think I do actually think about this a lot. 
And mm. I, th- I think about it a lot primarily because one of the things that has always bothered me when I'm in Aotearoa in Australia is how much the there's fundamentally amazing scholarly competent intelligent and just capable people in both countries but yet there's still this looking to the U.S. for kind of models and answers and um and I think that was one of the probably because I'm an anthropologist and so as an anthropologist I'm always trying to problematize the culture that I'm from as well as you know try to appreciate the culture the other cultures that I'm in and so it's it has always been a little bit interesting to me the way that U.S. voices have tended to dominate in this sphere, but, and, and it's not for, there hasn't been good innovations. I mean, the Duluth model, I think that we all know, you know, power and control wheel and various aspects of the Duluth model. I think that did speak to many cultures and many people. There was something about it that did carry, you know, across mm, cultures. Mm, mm. Um, and so that was very valuable, but I think that there's, there needs to be a little bit more of appreciation for your own local knowledge. Yeah. That's, I guess, what I would say to Australian and Aotearoan like, scholars is that you have so much to give to the global sphere and the global conversation about this. But that's just, you know, just kind of the caveat at the beginning. But in terms of what I think each country that I've worked in does contribute usefully, I do think there's something very valuable to what Title IX has done um, in the United States mm. for, the, for at least the way that universities mm. can respond to gender-based violence. Mm. I think that it's obviously a very unique law mm. and it's a very elite law mm, yeah. <laughs> insofar that at the university level, it's only really benefiting people in university, like everyday mm. people, you know, people who don't go to university mm. don't have access to it. Mm. But at the same time, I do think it's been very valuable for how universities can respond mm. to gender-based violence. And mm. so I think about universities in Aotearoa and, and Australia and what they might be able to do with that mm. respect. Um, mm. Where I think Aotearoa has been the most innovative is in their um, system of parallel development, Mm-hmm. The way that Maori sovereignty, um, you know, Maori wahine, Maori women, Maori sovereignty, um, and the treaty has been integral to the thinking about delivery of services. Mm-hmm. So the fact that you've seen an incorporation of indigenous epistemologies and methods in a way that you don't have in other settler societies. And mm-hmm. so I think that Aotearoa has a lot to teach other countries in terms of how to broaden our understanding of knowledge and practice um, in the way that Maori have really led. Mm-hmm. And then what I think Australia, where Australia is then a leader, um, is, is really with ANROS, the mm-hmm. establishment of ANROS, mm-hmm. and, and then things like the center. And I know that Monash now has something kind mm-hmm. of similar to the, mm-hmm. to the center. Mm-hmm. I think that's where Australia is a leader. So I kind of see each country has has contributed something that the mm. other countries don't have, but it mm. would be really great if all three countries could <laughs> use what they've all developed. So those, mm. those would be, I, I think, the unique strengths and contributions mm. that mm. I see of each country. That's fascinating, uh, Hilary. Just for our listeners' sake, do you want to just say a little bit about what Title IX achieves, you know, seeks to achieve? Oh, sure. So um, for people who don't know, so Title IX was a law that was passed in 1972 
and it was actually a law that was tied to education. So the, the kindergarten, so five-year-olds, you know, all the way through 18-year-olds, so through a high school and then into higher education. And it was, a, it was an equity of access law. Mm-hmm. And so um, it covers everything from sports to classrooms to everything. And so where a lot of people were familiar with Title IX is the rise of women's sports in the United States. Mm-hmm. So it meant that if boys had playing time on the soccer field, girls had to have equivalent time on the soccer field. Mm-hmm. If there was um, two sports at a high school for boys, then girls needed to have two sports. Mm-hmm. So it was really a law. So I've been alive the entire time mm-hmm. that we've had Title IX. Mm-hmm. And it's when you look at, say, U.S. women at the Olympics or at the World Cup, that's mm-hmm. because of Title IX. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. Title IX got them there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so so it's an equity and education law, mm-hmm. but then the way that it applies to sexual and gender violence at say at university levels is that any person has an equitable right to access their education. Mm-hmm. And if they've been violated in some ways, mm-hmm. you know, they've been raped or some other mm-hmm. harm, then the perpetrator or the person who's caused that harm needs to be removed because they're a barrier to that person's equitable access to education. Mm -hmm. That's, that's it in a nutshell. I mean, it's very complex and very complicated, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. it's, it's kind of an equity law across Mm. all areas of education. Yeah. Yeah. And there've been some leaders, you know, of late that have been, well, perhaps even longer than that, um, Hillary, who have promoted the idea of Title IX being uh, spread across a whole range of, um, you know, sectors in in terms Mm -hmm. of of where women uh, play a role and may still, you know, remain disadvantaged um, mm-hmm. you know, for, yeah. Yeah, for one reason yeah, yeah thanks for that so um, in terms of, yes and I guess that uh, just in regard to your comments about Aotearoa and our work with local iwi with, uh, with Māori uh, that we really do have to thank Māori for educating us you know in that regard mm-hmm. because it's been um, an enormous effort uh, on their part uh, to, to get recognition uh, so, that, so that services are you know reflected particularly mm-hmm. from, from their perspective, reflect their perspective. Yeah. So just um, moving uh, on a little bit, um, what about the, uh, the work? Just, the, this is kind of um, wrapping up our, our chat together, um, although you never know, it might take us a bit longer. <laughs> but <laughs> but um, I, I just wondered about what gives you hope in your work. Um, you've talked about how, you know, you've remained uh, involved with this field and with collaborators for quite some time. So what are the things that, you know, that keep you going and, uh, and that give you hope uh, in, in, in working in this field? Well, I think that anyone listening to this who does the work, whether they're a frontline worker or they, you know, are a supervisor in a government, you know, one of the government offices or a fellow researcher, or a student, I think you realize how hard it is to stay hopeful. I think that it would be dishonest for me to say that there aren't times that I've looked for other research topics, just, mm. <laughs> you know, just trying, trying to get mm. out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think, I think you stay with it and the hope, I mean, in some ways the, the hope that keeps me going is you realize that 
so many problems globally, as well as in local contexts, are tied to gender violence. Mm -hmm. and, and it doesn't mean we would solve all problems by solving gender violence, but I feel that we would cut out so like 80% of the problems mm. that we face, mm. I feel emanate from gender violence. And then obviously the toxic mix between racist and gender violence, right? Mm. Mm. Um, and solving gender violence isn't gonna solve racism, but in many, many instances, they go hand in hand. Mm. And so I, I think the hope is almost a sense that if we keep, if all of us keep mm. whatever our station is, we keep working on this, like in our lifetime, we will see change mm. and fundamental change, change to where children will have households where they don't have to worry. And so they can go to school and they can, you know, enjoy their activities and enjoy their friends. And then that leads to like happier adult lifehood, like, you know, mm. for life. So, mm. you know, you, you don't think about, you know, adult success in the job tied to gender violence, but I see them as connected. I see mm -hmm. happy children make for happy adults, happy adults mm -hmm. make for happy friends and neighbors. <laughs> um, so I guess that's, it's kind of depressing, mm -hmm. but it's also the thing that I, the hope that keeps me going is that we're working on something really, really important. Yeah. Um, and I think I share, you know, frontline workers, the thing I love about frontline workers so much is they're the ones who will say, I'm in the work to end the work, mm -hmm. right? And that's how I feel as a scholar. I'm, mm -hmm. in, I'm in this work to end my work. And then yeah. maybe I can do a different topic, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, so that gives me hope. Yeah, no, that's great. Yeah, uh, thank you. Um, look, this has lovely, been lovely, and I think we've come to the end of our um, session together. But um, perhaps we just finish on the fact that you are you you were successful with working with the UN Women, is that right? And uh, fairly recently, um, is yeah, yes. Yeah, so what I so one of the things that the UN has, well, yeah, UN Women has, is they keep a regular roster of consultants mm. and. What that means is if they have projects that come along where they don't have the time to do the application process and basically mm -hmm. do a job search for a consultant, mm -hmm. they have consultants who are ready um, mm -hmm. to go, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and it's funny, yes, because I just got one for Kazakhstan. Oh, wow. <laughs> which, Gosh, that'll be, which I yeah. Can't, yeah, Which I can't yeah. do because the timing yeah. of it. Yeah. But um, yeah. it's really valuable because it means that the, it means that the UN can hit the ground running. Yes. yes and I think yes. this this work requires such urgency yes. um, that I think it was smart that they and, you know, other entities have it, too. Yes. But yeah. 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 And I, I guess, you know, on an optimistic note, perhaps, um, you know, the the, uh, the enormous influence that the Me Too movement is having uh, mm. globally is, is fascinating. Uh, isn't it? And, uh, you know, we're increasingly seeing uh, statements made across the globe uh, about the treatment of women. Uh, yeah. So let's hope that um, that carries on, huh? builds, that it builds. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. I'd, I'd like us all to be out of work in my life. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> yes, great. All right. Many thanks, Hilary. Um, all right. It's lovely you. talking to you, Annabelle. You too. Bye-bye. We hope you found this edition of The Bulb Enlightening. If you'd like to know more about our work, please visit noviolence.org.au.
For victims and survivors of gendered violence who may have found the content of this podcast disturbing, free, confidential 24-hour counselling is available nationally on 1-800-737-732 through 1-800-RESPECT. If you would like to know more about responding to domestic and family violence, CQ University offers a range of postgraduate and other study options. Visit cqu.edu.au and search courses for domestic violence to learn more.